Jen, what makes crime drama so popular? Crime drama has been popular since the beginning of time, <laughs> since Cain and Abel, the very first murder. <laughs> so I, I think I have lots of theories on why it's so popular. I think that one theory is in our daily lives, we encounter a lot of mystery, right? Like I know in my life, there's a lot of unexplained things, whether it's relational things or things from my past or questions that I have, there's just always mystery. And I, I think too, like we're as humans and especially modern humans, we're not very comfortable with mystery anymore. Like we want answers for everything, want everything to make sense, but in real life, it doesn't. There, there's a lot of mystery that we deal with in real life. And crime dramas give us the opportunity to explore mystery and solve it. So that at the end of the day, we don't have, the mystery's been solved. There's that catharsis in like, I've got the answers, like, it was figured out. Um, so I think that's one huge reason. And the one other reason I think crime dramas are so popular is because I believe we have this really innate sense of justice and redemption that we're born with that like we want to see justice we want things to be redeemed that are not that are unfair or that are unjust uh, we want to see chaos ordered <laughs> there's a lot of chaos in the world we want to see we just have this innate desire to see all of that ordered and righted and the wrongs righted and and justice and we again we don't always get to see that every day in our real lives we live sort of sometimes in chaotic situations or um, bad things happen that don't get, always get redeemed but in crime dramas chaos is ordered the wrongs are righted we get justice we get that redemption in that world and I think it gives us a really great catharsis. Why do you think some stories are more popular than others? I'm thinking of like the Black Dahlia, mm -hmm. things that over time every generation seems to be interested in. Yeah, that's so great. Such a great question. I Weirdly, right, we have this fascination with sort of very the grotesque and the unusual and... Um, the barbaric, honestly. I mean, look at Dahmer, right? Jeffrey Dahmer, and now the popularity of that whole series. <laughs> and the Black Dahlia is a classic case of that, too. Um, I don't know. I think that's just kind of innate, too, in who we are and as humans, that it's so bizarre, right? And outside of what we know should be um, human dignity. And I guess we're kind of drawn to that. And why does that happen? And why does that happen to certain people? And what and the people who caused that, who are these people? Um, sort of the whole mystery around all of that. I think it will always be, always have that question of why lingering over it. You know, why her? Why that woman? Why in that way? And who would have done that? And same with, you know, any other kind of, very popular sort of <laughs> uh, eccentric murder, I guess, is a polite way to say it. What is your favorite crime mystery story? Like, is there a certain show, a certain oh, book? Man. I have so many. Um, okay, I gotta think. That's a really good question. I have so many. 
I don't know that I could say like by name what my favorite is, but I'm very interested in stories um, that have a psychological nature to them, um, that explore the criminal mind. I'm very interested in historical, you know, things, uh, criminality, I guess, in the past, criminal nature and how it was resolved in in history in like a hundred years plus ago and I like anybody I like I just I have a fascination with these serial killers too like what makes like mine hunters is one of my favorite um, of of late of the last few years books and series because I love how it explored the mind of the serial killer and how that that behavioral science evolved. So I like that. I think that's a very fascinating, um, a very fascinating aspect of human psychology and criminality to explore. Um, I tend not to like. I, I shouldn't say like. I tend not to absorb or consume a lot of like cozy mystery or lighter. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. I love comedy, but not not when it uh, pertains to criminality, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, let's, I'm trying to think, what do I watch? What do I read? Um, uh, but I do like I do like the quirky. Like um, there was a series a while back, Veronica Mars. I think that was a lot of fun. And I think that coming of age and kind of teen crime solving is fun. Um, Pushing Daisies was very fun. I, I like, I think just because it was in a very quirky world, it was more about the quirkiness of the world and the characters more so than the crimes, <laughs> the nature of the crimes. Do you think we as viewers want to see um, a show that surprises us or read a book that surprises us? Or do we, as the viewer or the reader, want to be two steps ahead? Mm, I think it depends on what kind of person you are. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with, yeah, with personality type and, and what some people are big puzzle solvers, right? And they want to be two steps, ahead, two steps ahead. And some people want to go for the ride and just be sort of carried along and, and really get into the world and the characters and sort of be surprised and see what happens. I really think it completely depends on your personality. So... I'm thinking back to like uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. That it was the kind of show that they would just give you little vignettes or little snippets yeah. of a story, but it had you thinking like who and what and would leave you with these questions. And yeah, that was, it was like a puzzle. That's a great yeah. way to say it. Yeah, exactly. Do yeah. you think the rise in uh, like crime podcasts, true crime podcasts or uh, shows in some sense can hurt the families of the victims or is it in, in a sense helpful because information can be crowdsourced and it could lead to solving the crime? Right. Um, it's always a fine line. I know that out investigators are always kind of walking that fine line um, of how much to reveal and how much the public gets to know or doesn't get to know. Um, I... I never thought about that question, actually. Um, I believe that criminal science and forensics 
our art as well as science. So it's a constantly evolving art form slash science techniques, right? So it's kind of like medicine. Medicine today looks very different than it did 100 years ago. It's a constantly evolving science. It's also an art. Um, my dad, who's a physician, always used to say, look, medicine is more art sometimes than science because we're const everybody's body is different and, and medicines react differently and certain treatments will react differently sometimes depending on the person. And I think it's kind of that way case by case um, with these crime podcasts and all the crime cases that are being sort of shown into the light through film, TV, podcasts, all of this. A lot of these are cold cases, things that happen, have happened a while ago. And so when you look at perhaps how they were solved 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, then you have to look at it under the lens of what was crime solving like and what were the techniques available at that time versus now. Because So you see where I'm going with this. It's like it's very much... It can be helpful sometimes because we didn't always have certain things then that we do now. Um, and I think it can be helpful because so maybe some there are sometimes criminals who were put away who shouldn't have been because of certain things, witness testimonies or DNA that wasn't processed properly or whatever the, the case may be. So um, I think that if there's a legitimate reason to bring the case to light if there are a lot of question marks because again it was probably you know more an art than a science then that's can be a good thing um, for for the justice system for the families um, I think though either way there's going to be how do I say there's always going to be people who in this process of digging up all these cases and looking at things again who may feel disenfranchised or they're being wronged all over again, um, that maybe they're being re-victimized um, or that are maybe vi angry because their loved one's killer was put away and now they're digging something up to say, wait, you're now you're going to try to free them. That's a ve that can be a very unsettling uh, experience. So I think that will always be the case because you're you're stirring up something that maybe other people have put to rest. What makes a great crime drama? When I first started writing crime dramas, I asked myself the same question: What makes a great crime drama? And I couldn't find a lot of resources, so I started watching binging, watching, watching, watching to find out, yeah, what does make, what makes for a good crime drama? What are the ingredients? Because I'm very, like, I love to cook, I love to bake, so I think in terms of ingredients. So I came up with this formula, this recipe. I think, basically, I, I'll give you the ingredients. How we put them together, I think, is what really makes, you know, a souffle better than a, another souffle. <laughs> but uh, I think, first of all, you start with this thing called mom, what I call mom and pop. So like the foundation of every good family is a mother and a father. Uh, mom and pop, points of proof 
are what law enforcement start with when they're investigating a case. And points of proof are mom, means opportunity and motive. So really thinking through those three things, whenever I start a new, to write a new or develop a new crime drama, I kind of pretend like I'm making the case file for my story and my crime. And I start with the way a detective would. Um, so what were the means, opportunity, and motive of my criminal? And I do a pretty deep dive into that. I'm not talking just like one word, but like I really go deep into what was the crime and why was it, especially why was it committed? Um, and then of course you have things like you have to have crime, you have to know the crimes. There's usually more than one crime that happens. So like, what is your series of crimes? How does that build? Um, there's always, um, then there's like obstacles and these are really just story elements as well, but there have to be specific obstacles at certain points along the way that relate to how the criminal and the pro protagonist, you know, kind of do the cat and mouse game. I think too, there are, I, I believe, and I think this is probably the most important ingredient. I believe that the source or the foundation of every great crime story is rooted in love. And it could be a familial love, like a parent-child or, or two brothers. Um, it could be romantic love. It could be just an agape, like a friendship, platonic kind of love. It could even be maybe a self-love, a person who's trying to um, forgive themselves for something or come more into themselves, become more um, a better person. Uh, or the best version of themselves. But there's always, I think, when you look at every great crime story, it's always rooted in love. Look at Breaking Bad. It starts because Walter White wants to take care of his family. It's familial love. That's the entire basis of ever of whatever he the whole thing, what he why he does what he does. Prisoners. I don't know if you ever saw Prisoners. It's a film by Alcon Entertainment, Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. That is also familial love. Everything that Hugh Jackman does to try to solve this crime uh, is completely based in love for his daughter. Um, anyway, I could go, Monk, the TV show Monk. He comes back to the force because he wants to avenge his wife's death. His death, death, wife was murdered and he wants to figure out how, wants to solve that case because of his love for her. So I think... Once you nail that, once you figure that out with your protagonist, that to me is sort of the basis of a really great crime story. And then you add all the other stuff, you know, your case file, your obstacles, your, your crimes, your motive means opportunity. Um, I think you need to pepper in some of the story. There's story tropes for crime genre that you just sort of have to put in there, you know, like maybe something blows up, a bad guy who's turns good or a good guy turns bad. You know, there's there's always at the end of act two, always uh, you need to put your hero's life in danger. You know, the protagonist who's trying to catch this criminal almost dies, right? That whiff of death moment. And I think you need a little bit of gallows humor. I think that's kind of like a little salt and pepper that you need to put into it. And then of course, character. Um, I think that all these great crime stories are like when you look at any of the uh, Hitchcock stories, they have amazing protagonists. Uh, and even the ones of modern, um, the, the protagonists are really Dexter, uh, Walter White. They're all very um, 
very, very layered characters. And so I go through like a whole exercise to help myself um, really layer who is this, not just a detective or a, an investigator. It's like, there's gotta be a lot more to this character than they just wanna solve crimes. Like, why are they solving? Why are they doing this? You know, what is, why did they pick this thing to do versus another thing to do? So character, um, of course, is, is key. <laughs> what kinds of characters do we most often see in crime dramas? Any kinds of characters. Any, any, any kinds of characters are in crime dramas. And that's because I think you have, um, uh, when I teach on this, I teach on 11 crime story types and I kind of go through, again, when I was binge watching years ago, all these crime stories, I started to notice, oh, they all kind of fall into like certain story types. Like there's the traditional cop, there's the forensic specialist, there's the profiler, um, there's the caper, you know, there's all these 11. And so what I realized in doing that is like literally anybody can be an investigator. You have a whole like amateur amateur detective, amateur sleuth category. So it could be a plumber, it could be a librarian, you know, um, girl with a dragon tattoo. She's not a professional law enforcement. She's a computer hacker. <laughs> uh, murder she wrote, right? Just a, a writer, just a, you know, in a small town. So really the protagonist can be anybody. Walter White was a high school teacher, right? <laughs> um, so I think that's what's so great. And then like, if you get into like supernatural crime stories, uh, like supernatural, I think they were brothers, if I remember right, I haven't seen it for a while, but they can be anybody. You have like the X-Files, they, it's really kind of uh, stranger things. It's a bunch of kids, but they are solving a crime. They are solving a supernatural crime that's going on in their community. So really can be anybody, which is why I think this genre is so widely appealing, like is really something for everybody. What's usually at stake? Uh, yeah, what's always at stake? You know how, you know, again, as writers were like, okay, what does the character want? What does the character need? And it's like these two storylines always flowing together, the external goal and then the internal goal. So the external goal, is 99.9% .9 of the time to catch the killer, to solve the case. That's what the protagonist wants. They want to you know, restore the world to justice, redeem that world, order the chaos, right? The internal drive is always the same. It's always the same overall goal. It's just different depending on who that character is, but it's, and this is why I think that um, these grab people so much. Well, any great story will grab people. The internal goal for any protagonist um, or the internal need, I should say, is if they don't get that thing, if they don't solve that case or get that thing that they're after um, because of whatever's going on inside, they will lose their soul. They will absolutely lose their soul. It's always like to say, um, there are worse things than death. <laughs> Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Losing our soul is the worst thing that can happen to us. And I think that's why when you find these really great stories, whether they end up being you know heroic stories or more tragic stories, again, back to Breaking Bad, um, the thing that Walter White's going to lose if he doesn't provide for his family is his soul. He's 
he will have lost a lot of other things, but at the, at the core of himself, he would have, it's like he would have failed completely, completely lose his soul if he doesn't, you know, step up and do this. So that's what I think is always at stake. <laughs> so there has to be a core of obsession in, in the character that's trying to solve the crime, whoever that is, whether it's like mm -hmm. a, an, an actual detective or a citizen journalist or somebody. There, there's like this, they just, like their whole life will fall apart if they don't. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, let's look at sharper, sharp, I always want to say sharper objects. That, that's a good <laughs> let's one. Look that's at the sharp, second one, yeah. Right, 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 exactly. And then sharpest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go, third right. one, yeah, trilogy. Um, so in sharp objects, so let's look at, and I forget the, I'm so bad with the names, but Amy Adams, like her character, you know, she's coming back to this small town to really unravel this horrific event that happened. And she's also struggling, right, herself. She's basically an alcoholic, if I remember that correctly. And so she knows, I think we see in her that she knows if she can't get out of this cycle of alcoholism, She's going to lose herself. She's going to lose her soul. Um, the only way out of that is she's got to uncover all this stuff that's been going on back home that she tried to run away from. So if she never, ever, ever in her entire life solves that, she'll never become whole. She'll lose her soul. Right, and it's a great opening too because um, it hints at some of the stuff that she went through mm -hmm. and then she presents to her editor, or, or I forget if, how, the, how it goes yeah. down, whether he presents to her or she presents to him and she goes back and it's, it's so wonderful. It's it is. on so many levels. And he's that mentor like constantly challenging her, right? Because he knows she's gonna lose her soul if she doesn't press forward. And she does be, it does become an obsession for her because there's a certain point at which She's kind of a, sort of a reluctant hero at points where you see her wanting to pull back, but then there's a point where she goes full in because, and it does become more of an obsession because she does realize if she does, for many, I mean, there's the external, like I've got to do this for everyone around me too and save them, but if I don't do it, I'm, I'm going to be lost forever. My, my whole being is lost. So it does become an obsession. <laughs> Sure, and it also too, it has a lot of baggage for mm -hmm. her to go back because from remembering correctly, she grew up in, in yeah. Wind Gap. And so she kind of has, you know, bitter feelings, but also f some memories that were bad and some that were, you know, it, it's, it was her whole being that was back there. Exactly, you know? and she has to go back and face that and then redeem it. Right. She has to redeem it somehow. What's a good test to see if something is missing from your story, mm. whether there's not enough intrigue, the suspects don't seem real, the stakes aren't high enough? It's very common problem, especially in first couple drafts, to have things not as suspenseful or falling flat or not making things as challenging on your investigator as you should. It's very common. So first of all, Give yourself some grace, take a breath. I like to workshop my work. I always workshop my work because even if I think maybe there's enough suspense and challenge and mystery and authenticity, uh, my writer's group will definitely point out if there's not. <laughs> and that's good. It's good to have that accountability. So I, I'm a big promote, proponent of writer's groups and uh, community 
in in writing because once you find the right community, you'll you'll start to well your work will get a lot stronger because you, and you don't have to rely so much on your yourself because they'll point things out for you and that's really helpful although sometimes painful but really helpful <laughs> so then it, the question becomes how do i fix this <laughs> all right it's falling flat things aren't as suspenseful i like to make sure that there are obstacles in tension in every scene and so when i'm going back through to edit second or third draft or more that's one of my checklists i want to see if there's something like a tension happening at the end of each scene like a little baby even if it's just a little baby cliffhanger we're just or a little baby mystery you're leaving us with something unresolved in almost every scene it could be an emotional element right between characters or a relational element uh, it could be more something to do with the case at hand when in order to make sure that's not happening with the case or like to make sure you're I I again this is why I love making a case file because I can clock I'm going to clock that trail of evidence from the beginning to the end and I'm going to before I even get to the script or the page I'm going to make go through and as if I'm the criminal committing the crime and then I'm the investigator investigating the crime and I want to make sure that the trails of evidence make sense and that they have a lot of tension and I want to make sure that um, my criminal's smart and my investigator's really smart um, so as for me it's a lot of pre-work to see that that's all happening and it really just kind of takes practice too you kind of write a lot of limp things before things start to really sing um, and then sort of innately you get a sense like oh this is if your gut's kind of telling you like yeah this is just isn't there's just not enough tension here there's just nothing really happening there's not enough suspense I think it's important to listen to that as well because 10 times out of 10 there's a problem there I rely a lot on my instinct and the more you write the sharper your instinct becomes I think if you're serious about it um, I mean it's, it's a, such a great question because I'm trying to think over the 20 years I've been doing this how did I learn that <laughs> and it was really a lot of it wasn't a book learning you know it really wasn't a, a thing that I read in a book or watched in a video or took a class on you know it was very much just practicing the craft knowing first of all what goes into a great crime story what makes it sing what makes it pop what makes it binge worthy and then testing it out on my writer group and then just using my instinct your story instinct really I guess it's, I, like I would call it <laughs> that's good that could be a book too story, story instincts. instincts that's I like good that. I like that good you can put the crossbones and yeah. things yeah the case file that you begin is this a metaphorical file where you'll do it on your computer or do you actually have like a manila folder where you create like your own sheet with um, different pieces of evidence and log things and that would be super fun 
I've okay. never done that. Okay. But that would be really fun. <laughs> um, I yeah, I usually just start everything by hand. I'll write notes and notes and notes by hand, and then it ends up on my computer, and just becomes a computer file. You know where I've sort of done all the exercise of the case. So, but I kind of like yeah creating an actual case file that'd be fun <laughs> create so, your own evidence pieces <laughs> the, and yeah there's your interactive game yeah so you're doing this as if you are the investigator in, from the pov of the investigator first the investigator then the criminal or vice versa i mean you can do either way but um i try to take both points of view like okay if i'm the criminal and i want to create a crime i'm going to commit a crime I'm going to walk myself through it from the beginning to post. And then what did I do? How did that happen? And then as an investigator, I can't say, oh, I'm coming. I've just been thrown into this. I have to investigate this crime. Um, what from the beginning to the end of solving it, what am I coming across? Um, because, right, we in the real world, um, you know, a detective or a investigator may not find everything um which is really i think good we want we don't want our main we don't want our heroes to find everything either but i need to know both i, I as the creator as the goddess of this world <laughs> i need to know both i don't always use everything it's probably not wise to use everything because otherwise it'd be just like a game of matching right it'd be too easy but i need to know well, I need to know from both points of view what happened uh, so that I can successfully play that cat and mouse game with them, if that makes sense. Almost like a chess game. <laughs> it does. So. And, you know, speaking of which, you mentioned the, you know, the investigator doesn't always have everything. In, in real life, when a case turns cold, quote unquote, is it because there's not enough evidence, there's not enough funding what's the usual reason why a case is sort of tucked away right there's a lot of reasons um a case officially becomes cold after 12 months so then it goes into that designation so during that first 12 months it gets you know a lot of attention um it could be because there's just not enough evidence that leads to a particular person of interest uh, a lot of times there's not enough person power to investigate. There's not enough funds. These police departments are severely underfunded. There's not enough people. Um, there's, yeah, it's all of these things that happen. Um, there's a lot of cold cases in our, in our country, a lot. And oh, it really just, there. yeah, it really kind of fizzles out because of sort of a... Uh, combination of all those things and it doesn't mean that it won't ever get solved but it it needs at some point a, a little boost of something whether it's a person just going further into investigating to make those connections money for that person to do that um, and then of course you know when a crime happens that's not the end like then crimes keep happening so then the workload right there's a constant workload coming in every day it's not like you can just stop solve that crime well and you know put a pause on the world <laughs> pause everybody no more crimes a second i gotta solve this one there's constantly more and more stacking up so it's uh it's a workload problem 
as well. And are there some nonprofits that you can kind of, different people can sort of crowdsource their efforts to solve cold cases? Mm -hmm. There are, there are. And um, different, you know, there's all, there's actually a, a, probably lots, lots of them. I got involved with the Cold Case Foundation. Uh, they are a national organization that's a nonprofit and they really solve the hardest to solve cases. They, it's, it's free, you know, they're all but funded through um, donations and, you know, not any sort of outside other, you know, agency money or anything like that. And, and so there are organizations like that, like them, that will help people. Um, they are awesome and they are growing and they re rely a lot on retired law enforcement and retired investigators to come in and volunteer their time to, which I think is awesome because you have, you know, people coming in who have decades of, of information, you know, knowledge about how to do this and the time. <laughs> so And the intuition. And the intuition. Right. Yeah. Interesting. What's better, a victim we can root for in a story or a villain we can love to hate? Depends on the story type. Of the 11 crime story types that I talk about and teach, there's one crime story type that's different than all the rest, and that's called the caper. And this is a very, very popular, fun crime story type because in that crime story type, we are rooting for the villain. The villain is our hero. The villain is the bad guy. And we love to root for the villain because typically the villain has been wronged in their past and now they're taking justice into their own hands. And we're like, yes, right? Because how many times have maybe we been wronged and we couldn't do anything about it and we just would have loved to take justice in our own, own hands and like avenge our, our crime or our mis injustice. Or, and so this we love this crime story type. So I, I don't think it's an either or situation. I think there's just sometimes we love this, we love this crime story type of rooting for the villain. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, classic example. Thelma and Louise, classic example. We just, right, like one of my favorites. Um, Hell or High Water, which came out a few years ago, has quickly be, and was kind of quiet, like just kind of came and went, but it's brilliant caper about familial love, rooted in familial love about two brothers who commit crimes in order to avenge their mother's wrong, something that bad that happened to their mother, right? Who's not gonna root for that? <laughs> Even though they're, they're doing ter terrible things. Um, all of the Oceans movies are caper, Italian job. And, the, and those villains, it's more of a team, right? It's more of a multiple, um, it's a, I was gonna say it's a team sport, but you know, a character, <laughs> a team of characters. And they're just kind of fun. I don't, I think there's maybe some avenging that goes on, definitely in the Italian job. But in the Oceans 11 one, like, it's it's really just fun to watch them get away with this big crime and sort of mess with the system. So uh, that is, I think, in its own, uh, just a story type that we love. Um, separate from, but not necessarily unequal from, the stories where we get very invested in the victims and we want to see them it's just a different story type um, where you're focusing more on 
the victim's story and how does that get resolved and redeemed. And so I just think they're very, they're just kind of different, but not necessarily one is better than the other, I guess. So, yeah. What makes a satisfying ending? I believe that a satisfying ending does not necessarily have to be a closed happy, everything gets wrapped up in a little bow, but it needs to be cathartic in that whatever un injustice was set up at the beginning needs to be righted. Whatever chaos happened to this person at the beginning needs to somehow be ordered. Um, there has to be an element of redemption. In, even if it's just a little bit, we can see that the world is just a little bit brighter for that person, that hero, or that victim. Um, I think that's the catharsis we're all looking for in this genre and that we're all looking for in ourselves, our, wor our own worlds. And would it depend? You said earlier, like cozy mysteries. Okay, that's more mm -hmm. maybe lighthearted. And in the end, yeah. you know, the, the, the sun will shine again and, and there's harmony restored to the neighborhood. But maybe girl with the dragon tattoo, not so much. Right, 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 right. I mean, you have the, the Hallmark mysteries, which are super popular, right? And they're great and like could binge watch those all day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> those in the Christmas movies. Um, and that's, there's definitely a place for that. It's lovely. Um, and then you have something more like what happens on Lifetime, which is definitely the more the genre of women's stories and women wanting to be event, like wanting to have right, right restored because um, think bad things have happened to them. And so there's that sort of a little bit darker level. Um, of story, yeah, and then you, we can go Silence of the Lambs or um, what did you just say? Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, yes, mm -hmm. where which I I love Swedish noir. I love nor that that Nordic noir. Um, love it. It's because it's you're right. It doesn't. There is a, a satisfying ending in that she helps them catch this horrible person who's been trafficking women it's horrifying you know kind of really dark and grisly but she does help avenge all that and so it's extremely satisfying um ending but you you know you kind of get muddy getting there getting to the end of that <laughs> so. and the writer has his own interesting story too and mystery behind his death oh so. did he i didn't read about that oh. well there's different theories mm. But anyway, well, people can Google that. I have no, yeah, I have no opinion on either one, but yeah, um, yeah there's been mystery behind it. So. Oh, I love it. What are the first steps in writing a crime drama? To write a crime drama, you first need to know how story works really well. Because crime dramas are left brain, right brain. You have to know exactly the logical... Um, plot right you your plot and your trails of evidence have to make sense not just for your hero your investigator but also for your criminal your criminal definitely needs his or her own very structured story but then there's the whole other emotional element relational element to the story that you need to know how to tell well because 
that's the thing that keeps that keeps is the page turner. That's the thing that keeps you coming back after the commercials or binge the next uh, episode. Is that um, that underlying the humanity behind all of it, right? Um, that your investigators need, and even um, I think we've come a long way when I look at like TV from the '80s and '90s to now. Even criminals have been. It's never black and white, like white, right? It's it's like the, you, we used to be able to get get away with like the bad guy, and he's sort of this stereotypic thing. But it's we are not bad guys are not black and white. Um, criminals are not black and white in real life. There's layers and layers to why they got to where they did, and so uh, those two things, the unlayering un- un- those for your protagonist and your criminal, are the for me, the foundations, like that's where you have to start. You have to know how to tell a story really well and then how to really think through these two major chess pieces. So, What should happen the first 10 pages of a crime, thriller, drama? What's crucial? Mm-hmm. Kind of the same is really any story set up. Um, you're setting things up. <laughs> you're setting up your crime. You're, you typically not you're you, because you're introducing. Oh, we're this is a crime genre. We're going to tell you about a crime that happened. So you're setting up your crime, your criminal world, your criminal. You're setting up your investigator and his or her world and what that looks like. Sometimes investigators are professional. Sometimes they're not. Um, what is sometimes they're this is their job, and so that innately gives them a motive for having to investigate something, a lot of times they're not. They're maybe reluctant heroes or they get thrown into a situation where they're sort of forced uh, to investigate something and then, you know, become more obsessed about it. But that's, it's really kind of, yeah, the first 10 pages, it's really the same as setting up any story. Um, your main your main characters and your world and the tone, what kind of ride we're going to go on, the if you would look at the pilot of Pushing Daisies, which is very fun, right? Very quirky, fun kind of crime story versus, uh, you know, Dexter pilot. It's the tone's very different, right? So you're setting that up too right away. I think you've said to start your story in the middle of things, come in late, leave early. Why mm-hmm. is that? In media race, just yeah, start in the middle of things. It's, I mean, really, I think for any story you want to do this, but I think it's really important for this type of story because you are constantly trying to build tension and suspense and you want to come in late and leave early. So that helps you um, build that, that pacing, that tension. Mm-hmm. You don't want extra... Really, obviously, like in any script, there's not room for extraneous, right? You only want what's on the page or on the screen to be there and nothing else. It, I think it's like tenfold for crime stories. If you're, tr- especially if the tone is to, is less relationship, relational, less comedic, and more about the action, the thrill, the adventure, the suspense, the tension, because you're really, you don't want to leave any room. You want to just keep it super tight and keep us on that ride, you know, fast. Okay, so with, if we could use an example, mm-hmm. so let's say, trying to think of the beginning of sharp objects but we're not necessarily seeing all the mundane right. of her life we're speeding right. it up right right i mean 
Yes, exactly. Um, you're only going to see, and honestly, that's a great, um, that's a great way of putting it because you really are trying to build for your protagonist. You're really trying to build in the motive, right? What is driving them personally? Let's just take professionally off the table because, um, especially for like detectives, like that is their job. So the motive, the, the, there's a different kind of motive because the motive is like, that's your job. Here's your case, you know? Oh, that's today's job. Um, but for like sharper objects, she doesn't have to take this. Um, and even like Breaking Bad in the pilot, the first 10 minutes, we're really seeing what Walter White's, we're right in the middle of the abyss of his life at this moment when he's just at the lowest of his low, like he's found out he's gonna die and he's, he's not respected at school, he's not respected outside of school. So we're seeing that setup of that motive of why he's gonna delve into the world of crime, criminal activity. So we're setting it up really fast and in multiple um, little scenes. Um, so I think that's a really, because we don't, it's, and he's, he's definitely more of the caper kind of, so it's a little bit different than a, a traditional detective kind of crime story. But even with the traditional detectives, you're seeing right away, um, they're getting launched into this crime, right? And they have to go on the scene and right away they're, they're trying to evaluate everything. They're right in the middle of this chaos. Somebody's just been murdered and this is a chaotic world. And what do we know? We have to quick figure out what we know. So you're given, you're, you're given as an audience and them as a protagonist are given just the pieces they need at that moment to propel them to the next scene. And then the next scene and the next scene. One of the things that's tempting for people who are newer in writing this genre and I'm just as I was guilty of this is just wanting to throw all the evidence up front you know within that first 10 or 20 pages we don't need that we don't we shouldn't have that it's it's a rabbit trail and so we're going to lay carrots all the way through to the very end so you're only giving your your heroes exactly what they need in the moment to just get to the next step to figure out the next step and then the next step and then the next step and of course, obstacles are going to get thrown in their way and bounce them around. So. so we don't want to make it too easy for the reader or the viewer to solve. And at times, maybe throw them off, keep mm -hmm. them guessing. Yeah, I definitely. You don't want it to be easy for your hero. I always think about, I don't want it to be easy for my hero because um, that makes that person kind of boring and not very good at his job or her job. <laughs> Um, and it makes them not very human. So they may do things, they may make mistakes. Um, there's definitely, I, I always say like, you definitely want rabbit trails that don't pan out. They find a piece of evidence and it doesn't pan out. Um, they talk to a witness that they think, oh my goodness, I just solved the case or this is it, we got what we need and it doesn't work out. So you definitely want that for, for your hero, also for your, also for, of course for your audience. Yeah, you want to take them on the ride. So. Why do you say limit physical evidence to three to five pieces? I do. I do say there, there are six basic types of evidence in the world that you can use. <laughs> Not just for writers, but for invest, real investigators. And physical evidence, there are three types of physical evidence. Physical evidence 
is especially DNA because we've come so far with DNA right now. I, first of all, my rule of thumb is never solve a case with DNA. That was okay in the 90s when DNA was evolving and it was like this bright, shiny new thing. But now it's too easy and DNA is just too good. It's so good. So um, that will, which is too easy, I think, for story, story-wise. And I say limit your overall physical evidence, three to five, because while those are interesting trails of evidence and we need them to connect the dots to from our crime to our criminal they're not they, they can a lot of times they can be easily resolved uh, because you're you know you're looking at tangible like a shard of glass okay of course eventually they're going to find out okay it's this kind of glass and it came from that window at that church on that street okay great we connected those dots awesome but what's more interesting story-wise is circumstantial evidence and that's all that indirect evidence what people think or hear or or infer it's that gray area and if you look at like we'll go back to sharp objects most of that is solved through circumstantial evidence piecing together memories piecing together where people were at certain times piecing together what people said or heard or what it's it's not it's there's a there are physical pieces of evidence but it's it's mostly connected through circumstantial evidence and I think that's what makes for good tension because and suspense and gray area in story and unless you're writing a very um, a very straight forensic kind of story type which is great I mean we have those and we we all love them um, Bones is a great example of that CSI and NCIS those are really fun and they've been on the air forever they're classics um, and they, but they deal very strongly in in physical evidence but I think that the circumstantial that other gray area is really interesting to play around with with your characters and that's why I say try to limit your physical evidence and really focus on pulling out character character and how character plays into um, creating your trails of evidence if that makes sense <laughs> is is direct evidence the same as physical evidence Direct is things like photographs, video, witness testimony. It's not really physical evidence. It's not really circumstantial evidence. Uh, so videos, photographs, those are fun to use, but they're pretty, they're direct, right? They're pretty, this is what you get. If, if somebody videotapes somebody doing something, well, it's pretty hard to dispute that unless you you know can figure out some ways to, to trip that up um, witness testimony can be very gray or it can be very clear you can really play it both ways so what about hearsay let's suppose you have a small town everybody's mm -hmm. got their own agenda small towns are filled with gossip right and everybody kind of has their own angle whether it's positive or negative right where does hearsay fall into that? yeah that would be more circumstantial type of evidence what people are inferring 
um, what they're sort of concluding based on, you know, whatever biases or things they think they have seen or heard or, you know, so, but I love it. That's definitely uh, what should be happening in your mysteries. Um, Broadchurch, uh, I don't know if you know this, British series, and then they made it into a U.S. series, and I can never remember the name of the U.S. one. Uh, that really plays a lot on that, what you just said, that everybody's got a different angle in town and a different, I saw this and I did this and he said this, and um, that's fun, a lot of fun. Are mysteries better served in a small town environment? I don't think it matters. I think, again, it's setting, it's tone. Um, we can have very, well, okay, I'll say this, because I'm from a small town, so I'm very partial to small, small town mysteries because of exactly what we were just talking about with the circumstantial and the hearsay and um, people are very tightly connected a lot of times in small towns and um, it's hard, it's harder to be inconspicuous. It's harder to hide things in a small town. You are known. So that's a whole one element to play with in terms of if you're, what kind of setting and tone you're giving your mystery. In bigger cities, it's easy to disappear. It's easy to be inconspicuous, you know, just to hide away and nobody knows you. It's, um, it's, so that's a whole different, right, tone and setting. And, but also there's, I don't know, it's, that, that lends its own kind of interesting mystery, right? Because you could be, as a killer, you could be killing a lot of people in a big city and it could take a long time before somebody caught you <laughs> because you're an unknown. Um, whereas in a small town, it's harder to hide from that sort of behavior, I guess. So it probably just depends too, like what kind of crimes you want to explore. Um, it's, of course, bigger cities you're dealing you can deal deal with bigger crimes in terms of like a criminal world a bigger criminal world like mafia or a gambling ring whereas in a smaller town that's going to be harder to hide it's still happening probably but it's going to be a little trickier to hide that to hide a mafia ring in a small town although maybe there's something to that maybe there should be a show about that <laughs> Like uh, the Crawdad movie, did you see? I did see that. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because she couldn't, there were all these rumors yeah. about the quote-unquote Marsh girl. Yeah. True or untrue. And and so it was just, uh, I thought that was a great. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of the, the best scenes were her just kind of like storming through town. Yeah. And um, so the, yep. the the shopkeepers, you know, craning their neck and things like that to see, exactly. oh, there she is, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, this little fish out of water and everybody's got their thoughts and theories about her. And I guess that would really be a caper, that story, because we are rooting for our criminal the entire time. Mm -hmm. Don't want to give spoilers away. But Too yeah. bad. If you haven't seen it by now <laughs> or read the book. <laughs> I've heard it's 30 years and then you can give away 30? Oh, no. no. Okay. That's okay. too long. That's too long. Okay. <laughs> How do digital forensics factor into storytelling? I know. This is a great question. I've been actually tr exploring this whole world of digital forensics for a while because 
again, it's really emerged as a, sci a science, a thing in the real world within the last 10 years and become, you know, electronic forensics, it's very huge field now, especially with identity theft and all that. I think it's, how do we explore that? I think it's challenging because again, like it's all happening on screen or inside of a computer code, right? And visually that's just not that exciting <laughs> to watch. So I think it has to, uh, you know, whatever, and also a lot, a lot of people, me included, I don't understand coding. I don't understand how criminal, I don't understand that world of criminal activity. I don't, because I don't know, I'm not a computer scientist. I never studied computers science. Uh, I never studied coding. I don't know how to do any of that. So, and a lot of people don't. So that knowledge is something then as a writer, if you're going to draw us into that world, you're going to have to make it accessible to us and you're going to really have to rely on the characters' stories uh, at this point in history anyway, you know, where we're at now. This may be different in 10 years, but it has to really still go back to the very strong basics of story and your hero and your antagonist and really showing us what they are doing, how they are doing it, and the stakes. And that's is an interesting challenge when the whole world of that is inside a computer, right? And a microchip or on a, in, on a screen. So I, I haven't figured this out quite yet, how to make that completely interesting in terms of if that were your whole criminal world. I think Hollywood's probably still figuring it out because I haven't seen any shows or a lot of movies that I can even pinpoint that, that where that's the focus that's the main crime-solving focus, even though in the real world, that's people's entire jobs is just to break down criminals on the web or dark web or wherever. Um, so it's a huge, huge, growing criminal world that's out there in reality. I'm curious to see how we translate that to a fictional world. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I'm waiting to see. I'm also phones, see. phones, geolocation of phones. And, and, you know, you said, you talked about, you know, mm -hmm. circumstantial evidence of someone's location. Well, now if someone's phone oh. pinged a certain tower, mm -hmm. maybe they had the phone in their possession and. Mm -hmm. Like that, yeah, that's, that's um, definitely see a lot of that, like using, technology or people's technology to track them or to track a killer or figure out their last steps in life. Where were they? Like that definitely, yeah, that's used all the time. And um, again, that's, I guess I would call that physical evidence um, because it's very tangible. It's very, maybe it's a combination of physical and direct. And so it's really easy to prove, right? Like oh, their phone was here and this tower is here. These are all tangible, very real things. So again, like, use them sparingly. <laughs> of the 11 types of crime stories, which is the most difficult to write and why? I just think that depends on who you are because they all are very, there's like legal, there's paranormal, there's medical mystery, there's... Um, 
profiler, I think I said before, traditional cop, the caper, I'm missing a few, but it really depends on what kind, if you're creating this, it depends on what kind of world do you wanna live in? Like, I don't love the legal world. I don't love watching legal shows. I don't really know a lot about, I don't like care too much about that legal world. So I will, for me, that would be really hard. If someone was like, write a legal crime drama, I'd be like, so much research, ah! Um, I just, it just doesn't thrill me. Um, so it, it really just has to depend, it really just depends on who the person is creating it and what kind of world they really wanna spend time in. Um, like the medical examiner uh, investigation coroner, that's a whole nother crime story type with shows like Rizzolian Isles and Quincy. And I, I feel very comfortable in that world because um, I lived that world. So, but where someone else might be like, ew, I, that's not the world for me. So I think it just depends on what world do you want to spend time in? <laughs> yeah. What happens when you get stuck in a story? How do you get yourself unstuck, whether it's a novel, screenplay? Mm -hmm. I research, I take a shower, I take a walk, I call a friend, <laughs> I, I let it rest sometimes, and I do maybe go do something else for a while, and I can say that it always helps. Any one of those options gets me unstuck. Yeah, I've so never... Good. Then, yeah, if I try it, yeah. So I just have to try something and it will work. I know it will work. <laughs> so. so it's good to have hobbies that are, you know, if you're writing about sort of a dark world, maybe hobbies that are a little lighter and fun. And you said you like comedies. Yeah, I think so. I mean, even something as simple as like, I'll just like, I don't know, go vacuum or something. You're just doing <laughs> something completely different than that, that you're not thinking about the story. Um, but yeah, when I unwind, I mean, I love, I love to read. I read a lot of nonfiction. I love, I've been getting more into reading more crime fiction um, rather than viewing so much. And so I do love to be in that genre just to stay up in what's, what's happening and what are the new stories. And, but honestly, in my spare time, I'm going to put a comedy on 100% of the time. <laughs> I'm going to watch Ted Lasso over and over. <laughs> Who's the best person to tell the story? Are you doing first person narrator, third person? I let the protagonist tell me. I know that sounds like so woo-woo, writerly, but I've told stories from first person. I've told from third I've told both. My book, Hole in the Woods, I have, I think, six or seven different points of view uh, that are all working through that novel. So, and that's just kind of how it came out. <laughs> I, I didn't sit down to plan that. It was just like, oh, this one's talking to me now. Oh, now that one. Okay, I guess we're doing a lot of points of view here. But then some are just one straight point of view, some third person, some first. Uh, that's really, I, I don't really know how that happens. <laughs> Well, the POV, is it of usually the criminal, the detective, the victim? I've done all. You've done all, okay. Done all. So yeah. there's no hard and fast rule. Not for me. I think, you know, I, I think it's, and I've heard other writers say this too, the way a story comes to you, because, you know, as writers, we're just sort of always, um, for me anyway, I'm 
like story just kind of comes in different ways. I may not even be thinking about, oh, what's my next story? And it just sort of comes at me and approaches me. And that, in that way that a story comes to a person, I, be, I believe is guides how it gets told. And it sounds very general. But if I'm attracted to a story, I was originally attracted to the, the story of Hole in the Woods because of the victim. And that was a very haunting sto personal story for me. It's a based on a true story. And I got to know the victim's father a bit and was tracking for years, because it was a cold case, her story. So I was very interested in it. It started with her. Um, so she gets a point of view. I naturally had to tell her point of view because the more I got to know her and her family, it just had to happen. But that story is also told through investigators and it's also told through the killer's eyes um, because I thought that they were very, had a very interesting point of view once I got to kind of understand or get, maybe just know a few more facts about what they did and who they were. Um, so I think it just depends on how a story comes to you. Another story that I'm working on, which is a historical, like historical CSI set in France, the story came to me through the main investigator and who's male. And I typically tell female, I typically have female protagonists. So that's been interesting to, to and then I studied his life. And so I became so interested in his life that it just, that's how the story started to unfold, kind of more about his point of view of how he came up with all these crime solving techniques. So, yeah. When the story opens, is there a, a, a rule of usually, is it from the POV of the victim? Or again, it, there's no, it just depends on the story. It really just depends. On the, and the story type, it depends on the story, how it came to you, and I think also the story type. But I do believe that you have to set up, what I've noticed about really pretty much any crime story type that I've studied, whether, whatever genre, whatever tone setting, is you obviously you have to set up the stakes, and the stakes are always typically murder. Somebody's been killed. There's, there's a, a crime that needs investigating. <laughs> so the crime is always set up very quickly if not within the first page then very soon after so. and that that goes back to sort of um come in in the middle yeah. get out early right so it, come in late yeah. exactly and you know sometimes you see it from the investigator's point of view sometimes you see it from the victim's point of view um yeah, sometimes it just depends. Sometimes it's from the criminal's point of view. I'm thinking more of novels typically do that, but yeah, just but but you're you're getting that set up like pretty fast, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about a character that's under duress from guilt, whether it's guilt from a crime, whether it's guilt for not saying something, uh, whether it's guilt for maybe overlooking evidence. It was a, a book that I just read, and it's all told from the protagonist's point of view. But we find out—I'm just going to spoil it because I have to—but um, we find out as we journey 
through the story with him that he is also the killer. Um, and he's telling us this story because he is so riddled with guilt. And so, and, and really the way that the killing happened was um, very accidental, coincidental. So it's not like a hard, um, you know, premeditated, hard-boiled kind of murder. It, it unfolds as sort of an unfortunate series of events that he caused. <laughs> and he's completely riddled with guilt about it. Um, so in a sense, like that drives the story, I mean, really drives the story and, and the investigation that he does. If I could go to prisoners and talk about guilt. <laughs> uh, prisoners is a really interesting case study in guilt. Uh, a crime is committed and there are two protagonists, two investigators. So it's also a very interesting, just a very interesting case study in, in a very unusual story set up with two protagonists who are Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. One is a, a traditional detective, so you have a very traditional cop mystery kind of tracing down trails of evidence. And then you have Hugh Jackman's character who's a father and his daughter's been kidnapped. And now he's going to investigate to find his daughter because he doesn't think the cops are doing enough. Um, and then his friend's daughter has also been kidnapped. So you have two sets of parents and they're all riddled with guilt in the way that they're handling they all handle the investigation very differently and they all become very guilt-ridden in terms the guilt grows in terms of what they are doing what they're not doing what they should be doing what they shouldn't be doing so it's it's a very very um that one is such a good example of of how guilt plays a very big role in driving what a character does I guess, or doesn't do. I think you do see in, in most uh, crime stories, at least one of the characters has an element of guilt that they're dealing with. And that will drive that person to hide themselves, stay out of view, right? Or hide something, hide information. Um, it will drive them to nervous actions just nervousness. And these could be physical reactions like sweating or um, uh, jitteriness, un uneasiness. Like if you're looking for visual character things, you could go to that extreme, which is an interesting obstacle to provide your story because now you have somebody, uh, basically a witness to something has gone missing. So if a person is so driven to guilt, there's usually a reason why, and it's usually connected to the case in some way. And now that connection is severed. So that's a great obstacle for an investigator to deal with. Um, it's, yeah, so there's, th there's physical manifestations. There's a lot of, I think, guilt the manifestations of that is hiding, whatever that hiding looks like for that person. Again, whether it's hiding themselves, hiding information, um, hiding someone else, um, that's, it's that, you know, wanting to cover things up, right? Wanting to keep it quiet and unexposed. We talk about the role of a journalist in a mystery or thriller, mm -hmm. how 
active are they? How much are they seen as the antagonist at times or the hero, mm -hmm. depending on the POV of the characters? Right, right. Um, are you saying a journalist who's not the protagonist then? or That's a good point. Yeah, I, I guess so, someone who's maybe a side character. Right. And how much are they allowed to be part of a certain ride in, in solving a case? Or maybe they're seen as the pesky, please stay out of the way, you're, you're ruining it for us. Yeah, I mean, that's those are right. all right. real exactly. things that happen. I love, um, I think that the journalist serves as the type of character who can do things and be things and be places and into things that a legal investigator, somebody under the authority of the law, like an FBI agent or a detective can't do, right? Because those protagonists typically have to work within the confines of the law, what their job, you know, the legal confines that we have. <laughs> but journalists, um, you know, they can get away with a little bit more. Amateur detectives, they're, I mean, they would be considered an amateur detective. And so any amateur detective can sort of get away with a few more things. So that's fun for a writer or creator to play with. You're, you're giving this other outlet to the investigating the crime. You're also, they can be pesky, as you say, and that gives a nice obstacle to the investigator. Okay. I don't know, a competition, sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or competition, yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's really fun. Um, I think they need to have a reason for being there other than like, this is my job and my editor assigned me to it. I mean, okay, that can be the surface reason, fine, but like, it just makes it a little more interesting. Like, what's the real reason you're so in involved in this particular crime? Like, always giving our characters other layers of motivation, you know. What happens in Act One of a crime drama? Yes, Act One of a crime drama. So much happens, right? So we're meeting everybody, all our main characters, protagonist, hero, um, or sorry, Antagonist, protagonist, we're meeting our victim. We're meeting people surround, that surrounded the victim. We're meeting a few, just a few. We're setting up the tone. We're setting up the world. We're setting up the why. Why this crime? Why this person? Why this investigator? Maybe even why this criminal? Or at least we're setting up those questions. Because there's different ways you can tell. There's four kind of ways you can tell a crime story. So we're setting up the basics of all that, we are getting into some clues that are going to be false. So we'll give, we're, get, we're getting a few hints as to maybe how and why this person died. Um, a couple of those are not going to pan out. M meeting different suspects, a couple new, you know, the kind of the preliminary persons of interest. And um, then by the end of Act One, we're sort of crushing that. Um, for our detective, and I use the detective as any, you know, any person who's investigating where this person thinks they know what's happening with, with the crime or they think they're on the right track and it's going to get blown out of the water. And so when, when they launch into Act 2, they're going to have to come up with a whole new kind of way of, of trying to go about this. What are the best ways to introduce detectives? Ooh, the best ways. 
so individual, right? Depending on who that character is. Um, but I, I like to, when I'm first trying to create um, a protagonist, I, I want to know what their secret is, their pet peeve, uh, what kind of quirk they have. I want to know what devil they have to fight. And I want to know their strengths and their weakness. So I'm trying to put all that into when I'm introducing them within that first act. Um, th those are just kind of my, my checklist. And then of course we go deeper into all that, but I think if we can hit all that, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good and we're showing our audience that, Hey, this is somebody we haven't seen before. This is kind of interesting. And then at some point we would do the same with the antagonist. At some point, yes. Yep. And that can get rolled out a little bit more slowly. Um, and it can get rolled out through the eyes of the crime as well. So even if we don't beat our antagonist for a while, we start to get a feeling or of what kind of person this is, you know, based on how they committed the crime. Um, evidence maybe that was left behind, um, what people are saying about the victim and maybe people that the victim knew. So how does act one end? Um, act one, I think needs to end with a bit of frustration for the protagonist, a bit of, uh, suspense, um, definitely a question mark. You, this is whatever you you thought happened to this victim you were ending act one with a oh no that's not it there's a big question mark there's way more to this story than i thought kind of a question mark and could that also be in terms of um access like whether it's the pov of a family member or 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 a detective that they think that the access to solve something or get information those doors are closed? Yes, it could be the closed doors of access. It could be the closed doors of a piece of evidence they thought was key, you know, or gonna, you know, this is it, we're gonna figure it out. Um, it can be meant, yeah, any of those things. Maybe they even have a suspect in custody and then, nope, the alibi pans out and they're off. Now we're at, we're back at square one. What are the major beats of act two in a crime drama? They, they're honestly really the same as any other type of script. You're going to follow the same beats. Like I'm very much a save the cat kind of writer. I, I use that as the skeleton of my story. I follow all those beats, except that when I'm laying out the actual case, those beats always pertain to my case and my crime and my protagonist. So, um, you know, we, we, we're going to start the beginning of act two with, we're going to have to go over, go after all new evidence and all new people to talk to because it just didn't pan out in act one by the midpoint. It looks like we may have somebody. Okay. We, it's all kind of coming to a nice little head of, of, well, I think we got the person we're looking for. And then by the end of act two, everything's crumbled. So, and not just crumbled, like this is all not panning out. We are not on the right track, but are now by the end of act two, that kind of all hope is lost moment. Our investigator's life is being threatened. They may, it looks like not only are they going to lose the case, but now they're going to lose their life. 
they've been kidnapped, they've been injured, they're being held up, whatever, however you <laughs> want to do it, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get this case solved. That's so really follows the same, but just case all all about the case. <laughs> How common is it for at least one suspect to disappear by the second act? By the second, by the end, of, for a suspect to just like like die, disappear, <laughs> or or maybe they've just kind of been ruled out, like you said, their alibi checks mm -hmm. out, and or, or you know whatever it is. Right, but I mean, by the end of act two, you should probably have three to four suspects who have not checked out, who have are done. Like you're you're gonna run run through three to four um, because by the beginning of act three your investigators going to regroup and get themselves back on the right track and oh wait now I figured out who's really the real person now we need to go after that person um, and then maybe if they figured it out who knows they may have figured out some of that before but they can't quite get there so act three is about actually getting the real um, killer but you're going to dispose of probably three or four before you get to the, the real one. And how important is it to reach the wrong solution in Act 3? Um, act 3, I don't believe, is really about re reaching the wrong solution. Um, I think it's more about because you've already had a chance to do that in 1 and 2, or you should be doing that in 1 and 2, by Act 3, you're coming up with a final battle plan. Now you've got it kind of figured out. And it's really more about that battle plan and executing that battle plan to really go in and get the real killer, the real um, suspect. So it becomes more about um, figuring out that plan, executing that plan, there may be some, you know, up and down in that plan. It looks like it's, you know, there's a little bit of tension and or a lot of tension in Act Three, but it's more about actually tar honing in your target on the real um, criminal and getting them. How important is it to have an overlooked clue? Yes, there should be, I think, because you don't want your hero to be. Uh, super smart I mean, you want them to be super smart but you want them to be human and humans we overlook things um, so I do think there should be you know it's not act one is a nice place like that by the end of act one by the uh, somewhere in act two is always a nice place sometimes it can even happen in act three where all of a sudden you know something comes to light that they hadn't considered before or that wasn't present before or whatever the reason however you get it there um, that that can be part of their their final plan where, where oh we we didn't see that before and now that helps us connect all these pieces and now we know how to catch the killer so must there always be a confrontation in act three yes yep I it's we're talking about flat old good and evil here this is like Crime is, you know, good versus evil, and so yes, there always has to be uh, that battle, right, between good versus evil. Because again, we're talking about the world of chaos and injustice, and um, that has to be righted. So there's going to be a battle, good and evil. <laughs> and how do we know we have a satisfying ending? How do we know we have a satisfying ending? We know we have a satisfying ending. When whatever chaos or 
injustice was set up at the beginning is now ordered, is now righted, is now somehow redeemed. Um, and this happens even in capers, um, even when the bad guy wins or loses in capers, because you're, whatever you're setting up, it even I'm, I keep thinking of hell or high water because there's this really bad injustice that's set up at the beginning with the mother of these two brothers. And by the end, uh, the criminals who are our bad guys, these brothers, but we're rooting for them, right? They do this thing, this criminal activity. And even though um, there's a big sacrifice that happens, big sacrifice that happens to one of them, the mother's situation is righted, it's restored. And so there always is a sacrifice, right? There's always some sort of sacrifice that happens, but we know it's satisfying because whatever was set up at the beginning is this is not right, this is chaos, this is, we need this redeemed. That thing is redeemed at the end. So whether it's big or little, what does the acronym MOM stand for and how does it affect crime writing? Yes, so in, in crime writing, the acronym MOM stands for Means, Opportunity, and Motive. So how does your criminal gain the means to commit a crime? So if they're killing somebody with a knife, how, where do they get the knife from? Who, how do they bring it to wherever, or if it's a gun or whatever, how, or if they're drowning someone, how do they, you know, how do, where are they doing that? What is, I know it sounds simple, but you do have to orchestrate that. <laughs> what are the means to committing this crime? Um, and then opportunity is simply like a criminal needs to have access to a victim. So how is that access given, granted, how, how does it happen? Um, and so that needs to be thought through. Um, so, you know, are they neighbors or people who work together? Is it two spouses? Again, just what is, and you know, there's like us, people don't always have access to us. So how would they gain access to us at a time when maybe they shouldn't have or wouldn't necessarily have access to us? Um, so like if we're in a locked vehicle sitting in a parking lot, we should be pretty safe, right? But how could, well, we think, <laughs> how could somebody gain an opportunity to access us? Well, they could break the window, they could pop the tires, they could, you know, jimmy the door, but however. So that's opportunity. There has to be an opportunity um, for that access. Uh, and then me, motive is the biggie, I think, and that's just why. What is the reason behind this crime? And I always, when I'm teaching this, I always, I'm like, okay, let's, what's the motive? A, a wife, a wife kills a lover. Okay. Or a woman kills a lover. What's the reason? Why did she do it? Oh, she was jealous. Okay. That's a starting point. That's the surface. Let's go beyond that. Well, why is she jealous? Oh, well, mm, I don't know. He was cheating on her. We'll just go with the very cliche. Well, why was he cheating on her? If she's so great, why was he cheating? Well, he, he, she cheated on him. Oh, well, why did she cheat on him? Oh, well, because, and then we go, we keep going deeper, deeper, deeper. We go all the way back to childhood if we have to, because um, sharp objects, <laughs> all that stuff that happened goes, stems way back to things that happened to her as a child. And so that's the motive. That's the building of, of the motive. Um, 
for the crime and the deeper and more layered and intricate you get that will help you really quickly inform the rest of your story and will help you really quickly um, work through that second act which is always a challenge because you'll you'll know so much about why a person committed a certain crime um, and because a lot of crimes are done in the heat of the moment some are premeditated but um, it's uh this, this book I was telling you about, I believe it's called The Patient with a, We're Following the Killer. You go back into his history so much and find out, and her and the, and the, the victim's history, and you find out why he actually did this. So that by the end, you're like, wow, I'm really sympathetic towards him. I get why he did that. Um, and that's what you want, right? You want that deeper understanding of, of the crime and the criminal. And... and <laughs> How does setting affect mystery? You talked earlier about a small I, town. Yes. You know. I love setting. For me, I almost think that comes first, more so than character or even the crime. Um, oh man, this is such a cool place. Well, what if there was a murder here? Or I think setting can be its own character. I mean, Knives Out, right? That that setting is its own character, that whole place. Um, Breaking Bad, that desert setting, that small town is its own character. Um, in Sharp Objects, that town is its own character. Um, the Crawdads, uh, where are the Crawdads? That setting of the marsh is its own character and it lends itself to the crime and how she was able to gain means opportunity, means and opportunity to dispose of, kill and dispose of her victim. <laughs> um, so, and even what the marsh taught her about how to live in the marsh so that she could uh, get away with it. <laughs> so I think it's it can be entirely its own um, aspect to the story. Um, what kinds of characters best fit into a mystery? Really, again, I'll just go back to like, it can be any type of character. The important thing is to give them really great motive. <laughs> really get, really spend time in the character development. Because I found at first, when I started doing this genre, I was very much a plotter and I was like, it was all about the plot and like getting the, all the trails of evidence right and making it this like really interesting weird twisty murder or just making sure that the murder just made sense right and that the trails of evidence made sense and that the protagonist could find them all and like tying you know like a big jigsaw puzzle you know pinging, pinging the pieces together and then I quickly realized through feedback <laughs> that that wasn't near enough that was interesting to a point but it didn't make it competitive it didn't make it binge worthy it didn't make it sellable and that's where we want to be right we want to be sellable and i started to see that it while that was all very important to know that to be authentic in your forensics and be authentic in your crime telling and authentic in your your detectives and what they do and your protagonists and how a crime is investigated what what people are left with more than that and even and obviously me too obviously as a as a viewer and a reader you're left with 
who were those people? Who were those characters? And that's when I had to kind of, all right, bump the next step, next level writing and really start paying more attention to the emotional journey and hero's journey arcs of my characters. And that's where motive and really developing deeper level characters, especially if you're writing a series, right? Um, whether it's a limited series or a series you hope goes on and on, you want to stick with characters that are very interesting and memorable. And so any character will do, <laughs> but it has to be I mean, any type of person or character. You have to find that thing that makes them memorable and unique and only you can do that because we all come from these very different backgrounds and very different everybody has very different experiences and we've all lived in different geographic places and all of that can inform who you create as a character it's not something anybody can give you or teach you or tell you you have to start digging into your own experiences to help you create those characters. And what is a red herring and how does it factor into mysteries? Mm -hmm. A red herring is simply a thing that doesn't pan out. <laughs> so an investigator's like, oh, I've got this, you know, this fingerprint. I'm gonna chase after that. And they go and they chase after it and they find, oh no, actually it's just the next door neighbor and she was home with the kids and she has an alibi. So that's that's an example of a red herring. It's just a piece of evidence that just you know, takes you in the wrong direction for a second and then doesn't pan out. So, so it wouldn't be characters, because I was thinking about some of the characters, all of them like sort of like there were five and they all mm -hmm. had their own motives, but you don't know, you, we haven't narrowed down who it is yet. No, it, it could actually be a character. Oh, it can. You think okay. this one character is it and they turn out to be a red herring. Yeah, so it could be evidence, could be a person, yep. Ah, mm -hmm. okay, okay, great. Uh, what about rabbit holes? Rabbit holes are, well, we've all been down rabbit holes. And at the end of the rabbit hole, there's just a hole. <laughs> there's nothing there. <laughs> oh, I and see. So, okay. No, but I mean, in, in crime writing, you, you want your investigators to be like little rabbits going after what they think is the right clue. But at the end, they're just a hole. It's nothing. And now they got to climb out of the hole and they got to try another trail. Um, you know, so we, you know, just think about how in real life sometimes we, if we're on the computer or we're surfing, we end up going down this crazy, I was just looking for shoes and somehow now I'm going to Hawaii. <laughs> like, how did that happen? Right. So, yeah. And how much do you like to foreshadow in a story? And what um, does that mean? Yeah, actually? that's a good question. I don't think about it at all in crime writing. That's funny. I think about it in drama writing but that's fun funny question good question i don't think about foreshadowing at all in crime writing what is foreshadowing exactly? i mean to me it's you're sort of layering a hint of something to come and i i'm just thinking about all like crime other crime writing books or things that i've I don't think we talk about it much in this genre because you don't want to do that necessarily. Like you don't want to hint, you don't want to give us a hint about something that's to come. You want to constantly 
trick us or take us down a you know make us think we're going this way when actually it's over here so I, th I think it's a great literary device and I definitely use it for that for more literary dramatic writing you definitely want to put foreshadowing and symbols of things but I don't do it at all I don't think I use it at all and that I'm aware of so when should a writer decide if they're writing a crime series or a standalone story when their agent tells them. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a good answer. <laughs> um, yes. So most literary agents are looking for writers who can deliver a series because there's longevity to that. Most publishers are looking for writers who can deliver a series because long there's longevity. And when you start to invest in a writer, whether an agent or a publisher, like you... It takes a lot to invest into into in a writer, um, and so they want writers who, they're this is a career. This is something they're going to be doing for a while, um, and going to be producing many works, so that they can foster this career and, and make money. <laughs> so, I know when I've worked with my agent, almost everything we've pitched, sold is all based on a series, um, almost everything. Uh, now, I know a lot of indie writers or hybrid authors, and they write series because when that's the only way you can really make money, is if you're continuing to pump out the next book and the next book and the next book, and it starts to gather like a snowball down the mountain, and then the residuals, you know, and the money gets bigger and bigger. So um, it's not it's not purely financial, but also I, most authors that I know that are doing this, they really want to spend time in a series. They really want to develop a character and keep it going. And readers love that. Readers want, want that. They want to invest. And once they've invested in a book or an author, they want the next one and the next, you know, if it's, if it's something they really love and enjoy, they want more. You know, people will e email me, readers will email me, when's the next book coming? When We want more of Emily. We want more. What's happening? <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of reasons why I think a series is a good choice. A standalone, um, I wrote a standalone, it, and we published it in 2020. I, that one was a standalone because for me, that was a real passion project for me. I never saw it as a series. And I was already established as a, an author. And so I could sort of take the risk, you know, of publishing the standalone book because I had other things in my repertoire. Um, and I think the authors that I know that have published standalones, it's because it's like that. It's a passion project. It's something that really doesn't lend itself to a series, but it's something they're very passionate about and they they just need to write it and 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 that's fine um and my agent was fine with that but you know she's, okay well what's the next series wait let's let's keep going <laughs> so yeah is it easier to write a crime series than other genres i haven't written in a lot of other genres i've done a few things but i don't know that i could give a fair comparison but i think I always say I think it is a very challenging genre, again, because you're, you're having to create a, a drama, right, 
with all its intricacies and levels of characterization and all that. But then you're also having to write a crime story. So it's you're writing two stories. And I, I always, I start, you know, I lay out my crime story first so that I know I have the correct plot. Then I go back and I lay out the next, the other story, the parallel, which is the investigator's story. And so what's, because they have personal lives and they have things that they're dealing with. And so that is a whole separate story, right? And then you have to mesh them together <laughs> um, and figure out how they, how they inform each other. So I love it. I love that exercise in the brain. But if I were writing just a straight drama, I think it would be just the one story <laughs> and uh, another crime story alongside of it. So it's challenging. Right, because in sharp, going back to Sharp Objects, yeah. you have Amy Adams' character, but then there's a love interest. Right. And there's kind of baggage with that. And then there's other people in the town yeah. that you kind of get hints into their world, some more than others. Right. And uh, yeah, it's, you, you know, so you've got to kind of develop their little side stories. Exactly, exactly. But then you're always pushing the mystery too. Like always, you have to have that whole thing figured out. So I like it. I, uh, Cause I guess maybe I get bored. I like lots of variety. <laughs> Is creating a crime series as simple as coming up with new crimes? Or that's just one part of it? If you have a protagonist that isn't really going to change and grow, then it's kind of more about the crimes that they're solving each book or each episode, right? And and we've seen, you know, we've we've seen that a lot on TV where um, they, you know, the protagonists don't have a huge arc, right? They just week by week, they're the same person. They don't have a big thing that they're dealing with. Um, they have their B, C, and D stories, but you know, for the most part, they're they're not changing and growing a ton. They're the same, almost the same people from when they started, you know, to the end. Um, so there's that, uh, and that's fine. That's the, and then it's then though with those series or those kinds of stories, the crime becomes very much in the forefront. That's like really what we're interested. You know, we're diving into those books or that show because we really are interested in watching the twisty, curvy crime um, being solved. And then you have um, the other where I think you're looking at a protagonist. Well, there's a, there maybe is a bigger crime that's being solved or they're um, solving certain things, you know, maybe week by week crimes, but then they're actually dealing with something kind of bigger in their life where life changing, like doing a hero's journey where they go from zero to 180 and they become in some ways a different person or whatever right devil that they're fighting or thing they're trying to overcome they actually get to overcome it so i think there's kind of two directions you can take them so what goes into the outline of a crime series I start with my case file, which takes a lot of time. I spend most of my time researching and prepping all this outline and then uh, make sure I have my crime figured out, all the steps of the crime, the logistics of all that, how my investigator's going to solve that, and then the journey that the investigator's going to go on, um, and then the antagonist. Like, what journey is that antagonist on? From the beginning of the story to the end, where 
where does that person fit in and what's their arc? So to me, those are the main things that go in my outline. Um, I outline copiously with these kinds of stories. Um, because then when I sit down to write, I can just sort of like, ah, oh, it's all, it's all kind of there. I can just pull it up and now add, now get writing. Because um, I don't want to, I'm not a, you know, in the fiction world, they say there's the pantser and the plotter. And when it comes to crime writing, I, I'm definitely a plotter because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to spend my time. I want to spend my time writing, not figuring out does does this evidence work here or here? <laughs> I don't want to get that all figured out first. So I think it's important to figure the crime out, figure out how those trails of evidence work, how your investigator is going to run through that crime and figure it out. And, and there will be surprise. Obviously there's surprises once you get down to writing. It's, it's never finalized in the outline. So what other tips do you have for anyone deciding to write a crime series do's and don'ts give it a try like don't think too much if, you, if this is kind of like your first foray into writing crime and you're just you're very interested in it and you love crime just give it a try i think it's worthwhile for any writer to to try even if you're comedy whatever it's, it's such a good exercise um don't feel that you have to know everything about forensics or crime fighting or any of that to, to delve in. There's plenty of resources. But do seek to be authentic. Do some research. Get some help if you need to. Get some help in places where you're not sure about things. Um, and do seek to entertain first because that's, that's what we're in the business of doing. So... If you want to be a detective, go to the police force. <laughs> if you want to be a writer, yeah. <laughs> but are there, are there some overused tropes in terms of, um, or just like, uh, just sort of cliche characters, like mm. the, the curmudgeon sergeant who's right. fighting with the, the other officers, but that's not really how it is, or um, just the, I don't know, the, the, the jealous ex-wife right. that, that we've seen, or, or ex-husband. Um, or maybe the evil sister. Right. Um, you know, all of these, I think, I think um, we, I don't know that I believe in overused tropes as much as not well played out or well developed stereotypes. I do, yeah, I do think it's okay to have that curmudgeonly sergeant even though that's typically not what happens in real life, because we're not here to portray necessarily what happens in real life. But I think it's more of, again, going back to why is that sergeant curmudgeonly against that detective? Because kind of the stereotype is just, well, that's just their roles. Like, it's just his job to be a curmudgeon and, and to provide obstacles for that police officer. And it's like, okay, that's, Great, that was 1950s or <laughs> whatever. But what if we gave that curmudgeonly uh, sergeant a really good, interesting reason for being curmudgeonly that has maybe nothing to do with the police force or maybe it has everything to do with that officer and there's some history there. Um, so again, I just think having motivations for why your character's are the way they are and interact the way they do 
can go a long way in breaking down stereotypes. But I think the tropes are like most of the tropes are okay. We we need tropes. I mean, trope simply means a turn, right? It's just turning the story in a in a different way to satisfy the audience's expectations. Well, we need that. Like we're okay with that as an audience. What we're not okay with is just the stereotype, the the inauthenticity of it. We want to, you know, especially I think viewers now are very savvy and we, it's why, 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 why are they doing it? Why, 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 why is that person acting that way towards this person? Um, and yeah, so I just like keep digging, 